Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill on a, I usually say it's a beautiful Friday morning. It's actually not that nice. It's pretty typical D.C. weather. Uh, I have been a frequent uh, guest and sometimes host, and it's nice to be back here again. Uh, I am joined by Bill's producer, Ray Rogers. Ray, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Chris, for coming in. We're going to have fun today. Uh, So we've got a great set of guests today. Uh, I'll give you a rundown in a minute. Um, A lot of stuff in the news to go through, both political news, uh, pop culture news. I want to spend a little bit of the time in the first half hour not talking about all things Trump. I know that gets a little exhausting, and we're two weeks away from the end of the summer. There's a lot of better things to think about than the uh, rantings of the president. Uh, But it's nice to be back here. Um, I'll do a couple of plugs to start. Uh, Please feel free to follow me on Twitter at ChrisLew44. I am a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, former Obama administration appointee, uh, spent way too much time in government and spent way too much time now on Twitter, but I hope you will follow me. Uh, We've got a great set of guests today. Whenever I host, I try to bring my friends in, uh, people who uh, I find have great insights on what is happening in the world today. I I hope you will find them enjoyable as well. Uh, In the first half hour, the 7.30 uh, half hour, we have Jonathan Allen, who is a frequent guest and guest host uh, at the Bill Press Show. Uh, John is the national political reporter for NBC News. In the uh, second, well, I guess it's technically the third half hour, the 8 a.m. half hour, uh, we have Sochi uh, Inahoso. Uh, Sochi is the communications director at the Democratic National Convention. Uh, Sochi is also a former colleague of mine at the Department of Labor. And then at 8.30, we have my congressman, uh, Congressman Don Beyer, uh, again, another longtime friend. He represents the 8th Congressional District of Virginia. So it's a pleasure to have here him here. Chris, we share a congressman. We do share a congressman. And it's, hey. it's nice to have a congressman who is both a nice guy 
uh, who shares my values and does a really nice job selling cars. And I'm not supposed to be just plugging his car dealerships, <laughs> but if any of you are in the D.C. area, it's hard to drive anywhere without seeing a Don Buyer uh, plate it's on true. a car. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. I mean, even Bill is forthcoming with this. He has a Don Buyer car. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, I mean, I in this day and age, you know, when we've got uh, somebody in the White House who is so shamelessly hawking his own products and profiting off uh, his service. It's nice because when you talk to Don, you would never know that Don spent his life selling cars. Nope, you would never, unless you grew up in the area and saw some of the commercials. But yeah, he clearly knows how to keep business and politics. Yeah, separate. and we'll we'll have a conversation with Don about uh, service ethics. Uh, Don has really had a remarkable career, and and you know uh, we'll. This is one of those times that I wish we had more than a half hour with him. Uh, for those of you that don't know, he served as lieutenant governor of Virginia. He was then the ambassador to Switzerland uh, and has been a member of Congress. He's finishing his second term right now. So he's started in both. Uh, he's served in both state and federal office uh, and has a great perspective, not only about what public service means, uh, but also having served in the Commonwealth of Virginia for years, uh, has also seen uh, the state evolve. And we saw that we've seen that on display, frankly, in the last year with the Charlottesville incidents, and you really have a, a Virginia that, like the rest of the country, is changing. Uh, Ray, how long have you lived in this area? So my family, when they immigrated to the U.S., they originally started in Boston, um, and then shortly after moved to Alexandria, and then really shortly after moved to Arlington. <laughs> and so we've been in Arlington are you really? for forever. I'm in Arlington as well. Yeah. Okay, we're like neighbors. We are neighbors, Chris. I'm going to run into you on the well, street one day. So, all right, Ray, uh, th this is going to be relevant So when we start talking. So where did your family immigrate from? Trina. Okay. All right. Th yes. This is a relevant conversation because, you know, look, I, there's not a lot of things I'm allowed to do on the show, but I can shamelessly plug and I will shamelessly plug my Twitter, but I'm also going to shamelessly plug a movie, which Ray and I have not seen, uh, but we're both excited to see. It's called Crazy Rich Asians. I already have my tickets for and Sunday. Really? I do. <laughs> uh, and this means a lot to those of us of Chinese heritage and Asian heritage more broadly. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the movie. We're going to be talking about the Queen of Soul. Uh, and so we'll be right back. So stick with us. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone. We are live from Washington, D.C., from a studio right off of Capitol Hill. This is not Bill Press. This is Chris Liu guest hosting for Bill. Uh, I am a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, a former Obama administration official, a frequent guest of this show, and a sometimes guest host. I am joined by Bill's producer today, Ray Rogers. Ray, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Good morning, everyone. You know, I think this is my fourth time guest hosting, and I think after the first time I did it, I was fairly sure I would not be invited back. So thank you for having me back. No way. You are so <laughs> natural. Of course you would be invited back. Well, it's gotten a little easier along the way, and you and Peter Ogburn, the other producer, have been fantastic in helping me out. So we have got a great uh, roster of guests this morning, whenever I've guest hosted, I've always made it a point to bring people I respect and I look up to for their opinions, uh, as well as my friends, uh, because I think this format works well when you're having a natural conversation. So uh, at 7.30, we will have John Allen, the national political reporter for NBC News. Uh, we'll be talking about the state of journalism in a time of Trump, 
Uh, the Boston Globe yesterday spearheaded an effort with about 300 papers to uh, to talk about the importance of freedom of the press. So I will be talking to John about what that means. Uh, John's also been reporting on the latest news uh, out of the White House, whether it's Omarosa, whether it's the security clearances for John Brennan. So that'll be an interesting conversation. At 8 a.m., we have Sochi Inahosa. Sochi is the communications director for the Democratic National Convention. Uh, in uh, full disclosure, Sochi is also a friend. We served together in the Obama administration when she was the press secretary for uh, Labor Secretary Tom Perez when I was the Deputy Secretary of Labor. The uh, DNC is having its summer meeting next uh, weekend, and there are some big changes on the f- on the horizon for the DNC, some controversial ones, candidly. And so we'll have Sochi in studio to talk about them as well as where the state of the party is. And then finally at 830, we will have my congressman and Ray's congressman, uh, Don Beyer, uh, who represents the 8th Congressional District of Virginia. Uh, Don is a longtime public servant, and he has been a champion in holding this administration accountable, not only on uh, ethics issues, but on policy issues as well. Uh, and we'll be talking about ethics, climate change, civility, and lots of other great stuff. So uh, stay tuned. This is going to be fantastic. Uh, and I will be shamelessly plugging uh, my Twitter, ChrisLu44. You can also tweet at the show at BP Show. And we uh, hope you will subscribe to the show. Just go to YouTube and look for the Bill Press Show. Yes, there is a lively chat room going every morning. So be sure to head there and have your um, voice heard. We love to read your comments both on air and off air. So um, weigh in on today's latest topics. So, Ray, last time I was here, I asked the listeners uh, a question. I don't know if you've got a question that you want them to opine on. We did a pretty good job last time. And so I, I will open it back up again unless you have something you want to ask them. No, by all means, Chris, it's your show. So <laughs> at least for the next uh, hour and 52 minutes, it, it is the Chris <laughs> Lou show, which we need some new branding in this studio. I need a, a book to hawk or something. Uh, last time I was here, I asked the listeners, uh, and this comes out of the president's talent, and I will give him credit, talent for giving nicknames to other people. Again, Crooked Hillary, Little Marco, uh, uh, Lion Ted. Uh, what is the best nickname that we can give Donald Trump. And we got some fantastic ones uh, last time. One of my favorites was always Fat Nixon, although I think in hindsight that actually is a disservice to President Nixon, who had a pretty long set of accomplishments. Um, And so we we went through a whole series of them. uh, And so if people want to give me some more, uh, would love to get them. You can either tweet at BP Show uh, or at ChrisLu44. And what I did last time was I compiled all of them uh, and I tweeted them out afterwards, and uh, maybe we can get one of these things to stick. But I will admit, he, he's very good at giving people nicknames, and uh, uh, nothing seems to stick to him. So before we get to the some uh, hard news, this has been kind of an interesting week in pop history, and Ray and I were talking about this. Uh, I will give away my age, and I'll just give away Ray's because it's now the Chris Lou show today. Hey, now. <laughs> uh, Ray is 26. I am 52, so we are a full generation apart. And, I, you know, t- there are two momentous things that happened. The first thing that happened earlier in the week was that Madonna turned 60. And for people like me who grew up in the 80s, Madonna was our Elvis. She came up at a time of Michael Jackson. This is the advent of, of MTV. 
Uh, I, I'm curious to a 26-year-old, Ray, what does Madonna mean? Is she a 60-year-old woman, or, do, or does the music resonate with you? No, not at all. I grew up listening to her music as well. I have a brother um, who is 14 years older than me, and so he was very firmly rooted in the 80s culture. <laughs> um, and so I was exposed to a lot of it. And also, I mean, she continued to be an icon. She was still touring when I was little, actually. And so, like, I am very familiar with her. Would you go to a Madonna concert now? I would. You would? I would, too. I would. I would. And I know people that have gone in the last couple of years that said no one works harder than she does uh, at music. And it's it's an amazing thing that she has done in terms of the transformation over the years. And she's managed to stay relevant and still turn out uh, really good music along the way. So that was kind of an interesting moment. I'm uh, sure that you remember a lot of different controversial Madonna moments than I do. But like one of the big ones when I was growing up was when she kissed Britney Spears. Oh, God. Yeah. So, I mean, there's still, I think, a lack of knowledge on my part about some of her history, but very much so, I think that she's still been a part of the pop culture scene as I was growing up. Yeah, you know, I will tell, again, I'm just now going to go deep into the 80s. This is the thing that my <laughs> wife hates. When we, when we get into the car, it's just tuned to the 80s station. Uh, and, you know, I was there in, you know, 82 uh, when she had her first album. And I say album, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a, a CD, it wasn't uh, uh, an MP3. Uh, and, you know, her whole thing was boy toy. That was the image she was going for. Uh, and then she, you know, hit it big uh, with Like a Virgin, which was a very controversial song. Uh, she was, I think, on the ground at the MTV Award, you know, writhing in a, uh, a wedding dress. Is, do, you, do you know any of this, Ray? Yeah, I do. Okay. Then uh, she does Papa Don't Preach. Uh, which is about um, an unwed mother and uh, uh, having a child and, and, and having a conversation about whether she should keep her child. That was huge. And that was the summer of 86. I remember that. I was clerking, <clears throat> interning on Capitol Hill. Uh, and then she, then she kind of went mainstream and got this commercial deal with Pepsi. Do you, do you remember this at all? I do. Okay. And it was uh, to, to highlight her um, a, a, a new single, Like a Prayer, and it was basically her dancing with a church choir in front of a giant bonfire. And the commercial literally aired once, and then they pulled it because of the controversy. Because it was such an apt depiction of the current <laughs> state of things. I feel like these controversies are quaint compared to what we are witnessing today. Right. No, and that was 1988. I, I can literally go this year by year. And then uh, she had this Well, fame. you are a super fan, Chris. I am. I, You know, if Madonna's listening, God, if we can get her on this show, that would be quite an interview. And then the other big thing that I remember, she did uh, the Justify My Love video, uh, which, you know, I think at the time probably fell into what they would call softcore porn. It, it's, you know, it's pretty standard now for and now it's just status quo music video right to the extent one can find video music videos anyway madonna's 60 and for people of my generation um she's been with us it seems like forever but it's a pretty stark realization when a pop icon turns 60 my favorite madonna tidbit is that she dated basquiat who was one of my favorite artists did you know that i did not know that and was there obviously was a significant age difference no i don't think so they were both very young in new york city and, oh, very long time. Yeah, a very, very long time ago. And um, I think that she still actually has two of his most famous paintings. I think. Wow. Double check me on that. Wow. Tweet me if that's right. You know, there is also, I mean, I remember when she dated Sean Penn, when she was in Dick Tracy uh, with Warren Beatty. God, I'm like now I'm sounding like such an old guy now. 
Um, all right. Well, shifting to another uh, uh, pop culture uh, item in the news. Uh, very sadly, the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, uh, passed away yesterday. Uh, tributes um, came in from everywhere, and and they called her the Queen of Soul for a reason. Uh, Ray, as a 26-year-old, what's your awareness of Aretha Franklin? I love her. I know her music. My mom loves her. She actually just went to a concert not too long ago. Aretha was performing at the Strathmore, which is um, a big venue out here in Maryland. And, yeah, I love her. I was devastated to hear the news yesterday. No, it really was sad. And for those of you who may not be as familiar with Aretha Franklin moments, the Washington Post, either yesterday or today, has a kind of seven or eight iconic moments of Aretha Franklin. There are a couple that I remember, and these are more uh, recent history moments. I was honored to be at President Obama's first inauguration in 2009, and Aretha Franklin uh, sang My Country Tis of Thee. And it's, uh, you know, it's a song that uh, we we sang. We all sing in elementary school. It probably goes 30 seconds or so. Uh, She stretched it out to several minutes, and as long as she stretched it out for you, you could have kept listening. And that was just a wonderful moment on a very, very cold day, a heartwarming moment. Uh, the other moment that I remember, which you know, those of you should watch if you have not, uh, is from the Kennedy Center Honors. I believe it's from 2015 when Carol King uh, was being honored and um, uh, Aretha Franklin came out and sang and uh, a song that Carol King had uh, written, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. And uh, you can see in the clip that is posted not only President Obama tearing up, but you can also see Carol King just uh, in complete jubilation to have uh, to, to be able to see Aretha Franklin come out and not only sing the song but play it on the piano. And I think people forget that she was uh, a remarkable uh, pianist as well, and so um, she will be uh, uh, mourned as well. Deeply missed, and I feel like we would be remiss to leave it out. You mentioned Elvis earlier. Um, Aretha actually passed on the death anniversary of Elvis, the 41st. Wow. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, there. There's something about stars aligning in heaven. Uh, it, it's it would be hard also not to uh, mention uh, the tributes that came in. Uh, President Obama, as one would expect, um, uh, had an eloquently written uh, statement. Uh, President Trump's not so eloquent. He tweeted something fine. Uh, the White House put out something that was fine. And if you missed it yesterday at the cabinet meeting, another kind of extraordinary dear leader cabinet meeting, uh, Donald Trump uh, tried to eulogize the Queen of Soul, but then said, well, she worked for me on numerous occasions. And I see Ray, <laughs> Ray rolling her eyes. Uh, we could uh, we could draw lots of uh conclusions about that phrase. She worked for me on numerous occasions, obviously in light of uh, his racially charged comments uh, over the last, well, let's say last 19 months. But uh, for the Queen of Soul to be recognized uh, in that way uh, was stunning and I think baffling to a lot of people. And I think the best people can figure out is that she performed a couple of times at Trump venues. But uh, just it, it, it just there there are times where you wonder whether uh, the president is deliberately doing these things, or he just has this thing in his brain, this filter that we all have, where we might think something, but we we don't say it, and he apparently just says it. So that was kind of a remarkable moment. Um, last pop, pop culture thing. 
crazy rich Asians. Uh, this is a big deal, and Ray and I both have uh, are of Chinese descent, um, and I think for people who are not uh, Chinese Americans, who are not Asian Americans, to have a major Hollywood movie uh, that has essentially an all-Asian cast is remarkable, and I know Ray just said she's looking forward to seeing it this weekend. Yeah, I am. I already bought my tickets. It's a huge group of my friends and cousins, and we're all going to go see it. And the reviews are off the charts, uh, and I'm not just saying that. I actually checked Rotten Tomatoes this morning, just to, so I wasn't shamelessly plugging. Rotten Tomatoes, they're at 95%, which is really amazing. It's fantastic to hear because, you know, and it goes without saying, right? There's so much talent outside of white Hollywood, whether it's writing or acting or directing. And so it's really wonderful to see the public support and hold up these um, moments of true diversity in a meaningful way, yeah. You especially know, in contrast to our racist president. Well, I think that's exactly right. You know, in um, four years ago, either t- 2014, um, I had the privilege, uh, about four and a half years ago, I had the privilege of moderating a panel discussion at Museum, which is a, um, a museum here in Washington, D.C., uh, with the cast of a new TV show that was going to start airing. Uh, the show was Fresh Off the Boat, which airs on ABC. That was the first, that is, was and is the first network TV show to feature an Asian-American family in starring roles in 20 years at that time. And I remember getting up on stage, and uh, I was there with uh, Eddie Huang, who uh, wrote the book Fresh Off the Boat. I was there with Randall Park, who plays the father uh, on the show, and Constance Wu. And, you know, we were talking about the show, a sitcom about uh, an Asian-American family that moves from Washington, D.C. to Orlando in the 1990s, uh, and in many ways, it is a typical sitcom for network television. But what that meant to all of them, that this was an Asian-American family who had uh, cultures that they were including in the show, and food, and language, uh, and, and, and that was meaningful, and that was the first network TV show uh, at that time in 20 years. Uh, Crazy Rich Asians is now the first... Um, uh, now, uh, first Hollywood movie with an all Asian cast or mostly Asian cast in 25 years. Uh, Ray, do you know what the one that preceded this was? Hmm. I don't know, but wasn't Better Luck Tomorrow mostly Asian too? Yeah, I, it's Jade Luck Club. Or oh, not Jade, yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Did, I, did I get that right? I uh, think so. Joy Luck Club. Joy yeah. Luck. Joy Luck Club. Joy Luck Club. Yes. Joy Luck Club was the last one. And that just shows how far um, we've gone along the way. So. Um, whether you are Asian American, like uh, Ray and I are, we hope you see it. And even if you are not, I am told it is excellent. Now, the the one funny thing, and you can probably appreciate this, um, Rotten Tomatoes has this at 95%. There's been a lot of people joking on Twitter that for 95% for an Asian parent, they'd say, why are you not at 100%? <laughs> Yeah, I wonder how it's going for them, how they're dealing with that 5% loss. Yeah, you know, for my parents, I'd say, can't you get some extra credit? Go talk to your teacher to get 100%. So so that's that's the week in pop culture, uh, according to Chris Liu. Um, before we get to our guests, uh, we've had a lot of uh, news just in the last 24 hours. Uh, we have had, uh, what, really going back 36 hours, the president revoking the security clearance for John Brennan, uh, the former CIA director, former Homeland Security advisor in the White House. I had the pleasure of serving with uh, John Brennan. He is really one of the finest professionals you will ever meet. 
And since then, there really has been uh, an uproar, uh, not as much from Republicans uh, as there has been from Democrats. We have a clip of Senator Orrin Hatch talking about this yesterday. Yes, here is Senator Orrin Hatch um, weighing in on the Brennan. I'm surprised it took him so long. Brennan has not been a friend of the administration at all. So, uh, look, that that is not a surprising quote coming from a Republican, but um, the fact that somebody has been a critic of the president does not mean uh, that they should have their security clearance revoked. Um, It was heartening to see uh, people like Bob Corker yesterday, Susan Collins as well, uh, uh, criticizing the president for his um, uh, for his decision. Uh, but, you know, the outcry really has been really kind of stunning in the last 12 hours or so, um, 18 hours or so. Uh, if folks have not seen, there's a wonderful op-ed from Admiral McRaven, uh, who led the uh, who oversaw the 2011 Navy SEAL raid that killed Osama bin Laden. It's in the Washington Post yesterday. Um, Just to read a couple parts of it, uh, Admiral McRaven says, I would consider it an honor if you would revoke my security clearance as well so I can add my name to the list of men and women who have spoken up against your presidency. If you think for a moment that your McCarthy-era tactics will suppress the voices of criticism, you are sadly mistaken. The criticism will continue until you become the leader we praved you would be. That is from Admiral McRaven, who oversaw the Navy SEAL raid in 2011 that took out Osama bin Laden. And then last evening at around 9 or 10 p.m., a group of 12, now 13, former senior intelligence officials uh, came out against the president's decision as well. Uh, This is not only people that served as directors of CIA, deputy directors, uh, as well as uh, directors of national intelligence. And just to read you a little bit of it, uh, we have never before seen the approval or removal of security clearances used as a political tool as was done in this case. Beyond that, this action is quite clearly a signal to other former and current officials. Decisions on security clearances should be based on national security concerns and not political views. And so while the words are strong, uh, what is interesting, we'll talk a little bit more with John Allen about this, uh, was the people that signed it. Uh, People who are not only career intelligence officials, but people who served under both Democratic and Republican administrations. So you have people like Leon Panetta, Porter Goss, who was a former Republican congressman from Florida, who became CIA director under Bush 43, uh, General Petraeus, William Webster, uh, and then uh, the very late edition of Bob Gates, uh, Bob Gates was not only the CIA director, but also served as Secretary of Defense under both President Bush and President Obama. So uh, that is a striking thing. And then in today's Washington Post, we have the news that uh, President, Ob- uh, President Trump um, apparently is very enamored of this ability to revoke security clearances. It's a little bit like he discovered he could pardon people and now is just hell-bent on doing this. And he's got a whole list of people that he— Uh, wants to revoke their clearances for. And we should say 
there are a limited number of people who have can keep their security clearances after they leave public service. Uh, I had a security clearance. I could not keep it. Uh, I was the Deputy Secretary of Labor. I was also the White House Cabinet Secretary. I could not keep it. The theory of somebody like uh, John Brennan keeping his security clearance is that uh, he has a wealth of information, and there is value to future administrations in being able to tap into that information. And so while this appears to be a move aimed at uh, John Brennan, uh, it really is short-sighted and will ultimately have the ability, uh, ultimately will uh, make it more difficult for people to draw on the experience of people that have served in these positions. So uh, it is unfortunate. Uh, there is also apparently a process by which um, needs to be followed for these clearances to be revoked. That was not done in the case of Brennan, uh, and the president apparently uh, does not want to follow it for the other people. And as we'll talk to John about um, shortly, uh, the, the, the stated reason for Brennan's clearance being revoked um, now has been undercut by the president's own statement. He's basically admitted that uh, because Brennan uh, didn't play a role, I guess played some role in the president's head, in starting the uh, Russia investigation that uh, he needs to be punished for that as well as others who have played a role as well. So um, that's deeply troubling uh, from a national security perspective as well as from a uh, First Amendment perspective also. Uh, and then the other thing in the news um, is we had another cabinet meeting yesterday. I, I will give the president credit for convening cabinet meetings. I um, I, as the cabinet secretary in the Obama White House, uh, that was my job. And we didn't do cabinet meetings very often, maybe once a quarter or so. Uh, this president does them every two weeks. I think that's actually a pretty good thing to bring your cabinet together and have these conversations. But yesterday's not only devolved into another dear leader meeting uh, where his cabinet went around and praised him, uh, but it was an interesting example of the cabinet only giving the president the information he wanted to hear and to the extent that they told him things he did not want to hear, he basically blocked it out and uh, gave his own spin on it. Um, I think we've got a couple of uh, 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 audio from that. Uh, we've got um, one where he asks uh, the attorney general to do uh, an investigation uh, against drug companies on opioids. I'd also like to ask you to bring a major lawsuit against the drug companies on opioids. Some states have done it, but I'd like a lawsuit to be brought against uh, these companies that are uh, really sending opioids at a level that uh, it shouldn't be happening. So this is a good thing. I, you know, I think uh, the drug companies have um, not been held to account for their role, uh, as well as, you know, doctors, pharmacies. There are a lot of people who have fault on the opioid crisis uh, but and and it is it is perfectly legitimate for the federal government to uh, open an investigation uh, on this issue. It is extraordinarily odd for the president to make that command uh, in a cabinet meeting. It's clearly for show to suggest not only his power to launch investigations, but theoretically his power to stop investigations as well. So that's a, a troubling thing. Uh, we've got another clip when he is talking to the Homeland Security Secretary, uh, Kirsten Nielsen. The horrible immigration laws that we have to live with, uh, with catch and release and all of the, the horror show. It's a horror show. It's a disgrace, frankly. We'll get it changed. Uh, it's a horror show. It's a horror show after he 
uh, talks about why we have not done more to uh, solve our immigration crisis. And uh, the one other funny moment of that was when the Secretary of Labor, uh, Alex Acosta, was talking about health care reform. Uh, the president said, we actually got rid of Obamacare except for one vote. Um, I don't, I'm not sure really what that means. I think um, <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, just rich. You know, I could have been a basketball player, except I wasn't tall enough. I could have won the Academy Award, except I didn't make a movie. So, um, you know, more more examples of, of the president's wishful thinking. Uh, this is the Bill Press Show. This is Chris Liu. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. This is Chris Liu guest hosting for Bill on a, I, it's not a beautiful Friday. It's just a typical Washington August Friday. Uh, I am in studio with Bill's producer, Ray Rogers, and we have as our guest today, John Allen. John, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, John is the, a national political reporter for NBC News, formerly of CQ, Bloomberg, Politico, and as he said, various other places along the way, the best-selling author of HRC, as well as Shattered Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. Uh, please follow John on Twitter at John Allen, uh, D.C., uh, J-O-N-A-L-L-E-N-D-C. You can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLew44. John, uh, you are a, a frequent guest, uh, often host of this show, so you know the routine here. Um, we were just talking uh, before we came on the air um, about the president, his weekend schedule, and you said you know you don't you don't cover the weekend. Does what is what is covering Trump like in terms of your day to day rhythm, uh, your professional life, your personal life? I mean, it it's got to be exhausting. Yes, um, in a word, and uh, the last couple of months have been particularly so because he's been doing foreign travel and not the predictable kind of foreign travel right. uh, that some presidents do. Um, you know, we uh, went with him to uh, Singapore. Uh, I, I say we, not the royal we. I mean, right. The press went with them to Singapore <laughs> uh, for the Kim Jong-un meeting, uh, Brussels, uh, London. Uh, some folks went to Scotland. I didn't do that. Uh, and then Helsinki uh, for the Putin meeting. So throw that into, uh, you know, a sort of normal schedule for him that starts with tweeting often, uh, you know, around 6 a.m. and ends with him tweeting at, you know, 11 p.m. or whenever else he decides to do it. It can be very exhausting. I think most news organizations have made some effort to try to uh, to try to cope with the amount of stuff coming from the president. Um, I know, you know, in my case, it's not that I never write things on the weekends, but there are people who are, you know, sort of if he tweets something, uh, can can write up stories on that. Uh, same thing sometimes, you know, in the morning we have folks that do that. So, um, you know, everyone's adjusting. Is the whole way that newsrooms are now staffed has changed? I mean, having served in the Obama administration and having been on the Hill for a long time before then, it's not like we only conducted our business between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., but there was a sense that you kind of knew Saturday mornings were quiet, you kind of knew Sunday mornings, and, you know, if something extraordinary happened on a Friday night, it would really have to be like, you know, hey, we got bin Laden. It wasn't just, or it was a Sunday night, I guess. It wasn't just um, the president, you know, going off and doing something. So what does that mean for newsroom? But then what does that mean for your own life as a journalist? Well, I have a different view of what happened in the Obama administration and previous Please. administrations about Fridays, which is... Um, That's when we dump stuff, John. Exactly. <laughs> so you dump and run, right? Friday at 5 o'clock, you dump uh, dump bad news, and then no one's available So you guys caught comment. on to that? Yeah. yeah. 
But the problem with the Trump administration from just a perspective of the bandwidth of reporters is uh, every minute is a potential Friday news dump. Right. Um, and, you know, so we saw this week, um, you know, the president uh, was was struggling through the Omarosa story uh, and then, uh, you know, decided to strip the security clearance from John Brennan. Uh, the original uh, paper that they put out was dated last month. Um, suggesting that maybe they've been holding on to it for a while for just such an occasion. And I, I'm just interested, though, um, you know, I, I, so uh, walk me through. I'm just curious. Uh, president tweets something. Uh, does the newsroom kind of like, OK, who's got this one? Who calls the White House to get some more context on this? Or does people just spring into action? Or do you sort of say, OK, well, this one is sort of like the last five he's done on this. We're not going to really write on this. We have um, actually alarm bells all over the newsroom and, <laughs> and installed in people's uh, homes. So he tweets and the alarm bell goes off and then we Pavlovian, you know. Sort I was going to say, you're probably not, you're only sort of half joking, John, I'm sure. Yeah, there's like a bunch of um, dummy, uh, and I kid about this, uh, but, you know, sort of dummy stories written up that say President Donald Trump tweeted. Yeah. You know, just so you don't have to uh the White House was unavailable words. for comment or right. for further clarification. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, look, I, I th- it's interesting. Sometimes they're they're available for that stuff, um, but they typically say what's smart for them to say, which is, um, you know, the president expressed himself because they're sort of in a bind when he tweets things that aren't, you know, sort of um, not based in truth, uh, and you work for him, and you know that if you go out there and throw him under the bus, he's going to fire you. What else can you say other yeah. than look at what the president just yeah. said? Uh, but to, to your question, uh, in terms of what you know, how we respond to the tweets, I mean, everybody does it a little differently. Um, you know, we do stories based on what he's tweeting if there's if there's something newsworthy in it. You know, I remind people uh, that again, uh, Donald Trump has taken this to a different level, but it wasn't like the Obama administration did not try to get their message out in different ways, whether it was. Um, uh, between two ferns, whether it was going on the uh, the, the Jimmy Fallon show, do, do you think this? You know, again, do you think the next president after Trump can can kind of put this back in a box again, or will they see Twitter or whatever the social media platform of the of the time is kind of this irresistible thing that they can use? I mean, I think in some ways, um, because Trump seems to tweet what he's feeling. Um, it's an incredible window into what the president thinks um, that you probably won't see in future presidents. I think, you know, the, to, to me, one of the, the sort of scary prospects is a future president learning to use this uh, social media tool in a way that is both as um, alluring of attention as Trump is, but also in a more disciplined way Yeah. Um, in terms of getting messages out. So, like, you mentioned the Obama administration, you talk about between two firms, but, like, I remember MyBarackObama.com, and the president had this website that was its own community uh, where he could communicate with all of his followers pretty quickly um, and even in an interactive way, responding to the things that they cared about. I mean, obviously staff doing that, but uh, this was a way around the press. Um, And, you know, I think presidents are always trying to find a way to to get around the press and to have a megaphone straight to the people. Well, so that's that's a good segue into another thing that happened yesterday. Um, As folks may have seen, the Boston Globe coordinated an effort by, I think, over 300 papers to write editorials uh, about the importance of freedom of the press. Uh, I know that there again, you pointed out to me before we went on air that this is the editorial side. Um, I know that there are mixed feelings about um, whether this 
helps uh, show the importance of freedom of the press, or this is simply playing into the president's hands. What do you what do you think about that? It's both. I mean, the president wants the press to be his enemy, right? He says the press is the enemy of the people, and by that, he thinks of himself as the president of the United States as the representative of the people, right? Like in Donald Trump's view. What's good for Donald Trump is good for the country, is good for the people of the country, and anything that is against Donald Trump must therefore be against the people. So he would rather run against an institution, uh, the media, that generally doesn't fight back than run against people that do fight back and certainly would rather try to undermine independent uh, uh, voices and, and arbiters of uh, what's going on in the world. And, you know, I mean, I don't... Yeah, you know, look at what he does with with all sorts of people. Anybody who who is not with him is against him yeah. in his view, and and he does as much as he can to crush the credibility, particularly of those who aren't actively trying to resist him or actively going after him. You know, and I thought his reaction on Twitter yesterday was an interesting one. He first uh, gave a series of misleading facts about the sale of the Boston Globe to the New York Times. Uh, then he called. Oh, I guess he first called the fake news media the opposition party. Then he made up some uh, numbers about the sale of the Boston Globe to the New York Times. Then he said he's in favor of a. Everyone's in favor of a free press, uh, but these people have a political agenda and are just trying to hurt people. And and I do wonder, going back to the comment you had made a couple minutes ago about a president who was truly disciplined and was creating their own channel of talking to their supporters. That's kind of what he's doing. He's basically saying. Ignore everyone except for what I tell you or essentially what Fox News tells you, I think is what he's saying now. Right. Now imagine a president who does that and is constantly seeking to expand the set of people that they're speaking to directly and disconnecting from other sources of information. Right. Somebody who's got like a real plan for expanding their base. I mean, the problem for Trump, and we'll see, you know, what happens over the next couple of years, but the problem for Trump is that the Republican Party has essentially become more narrow. Right. Um, and he loves to keep that base. And what most politicians would do once they feel like they have their base behind them is they start to expand. And what we don't see from Trump is any real effort to do that. To the extent that there's an effort to do that, it is in the numbers that you as a former Labor Department official yeah. probably understand can change a lot, right? So he talks about black unemployment, right. uh, Hispanic unemployment, um, polling that suggests that he has more African-Americans right. behind him now than before. So I think he's trying to like at the at the margins reduce opposition to him, um, but uh, but those numbers can change, yeah. right? Uh, hopefully they get lower, not sure. higher. Um, I'm just not sure that he has a sustainable plan for like adding anybody to his yeah. base. And by the way, when you're telling people that they're not welcome, you know, or that they're not part of the country that they were born in. Um, you know, I think that it uh, it makes it harder for them to look at broad economic data and say, now, this president's for me. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And it, But I think it is an interesting case. I mean, the question about whether a disciplined president uses his megaphone to expand. I think the appeal for Trump to his supporters is that he, you, you do get a window into what he is thinking. He speaks in a very emotion-filled way that I think charges up a core group of people. But the problem is, you know, on social media— the more outrageous you are, the more followers you tend to get. If you kind of give, give these milk toast tweets, people kind of just don't care. And it's one of the reasons why individuals tend to get more followers than organizations do, because organizations kind of kind of go towards the middle, and it's hard to sort of rally behind the middle. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, one in four or one in five of Trump's tweets are something really anodyne. Yeah. But, like, most of them are basically, yeah. like, you know, hair on fire. For I think partially for that reason and partially because that's just how he feels. I think he – and, look, one of the things that I think the left failed to understand about him because of all the histrionics is that he did have a message yeah. that was pretty clear in the last election – it was, uh, you can call it isolationist, you can call it nativist, nationalist, whatever you want to call it. But he was getting that message across uh, sort of in a cloud of, um, you know, misleading things, lies, uh, anger, you know, bitterness, whatever. But, like, there still was a core message there about what he was trying to yeah. do. Yeah. Let me, um, let me pivot uh, to... Uh, the big confrontation this week, which was the president, Omarosa, his former apprentice, uh, who may, well, we can argue about whether she's now become the master. Um, she's been all over TV, including on your network, a lot. Um, how do we evaluate the allegations that she has made? Um, and and are we giving her too much airtime? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't make the decisions of the network, and I would uh, be really dumb to second-guess them on uh, on other broadcasts. Uh, um, I, look, as long as she's got something newsworthy, she ought to be on the air. And in this case, she's got things that are newsworthy. Yeah. I mean, tapes of Laura yes. Trump offering yes. her what sounds to everybody like hush money, um, you know, sounds like a no-show job, right? You're going to go to some meetings in New York and occasionally give some speeches. Yeah. We're going to pay you $15,000 a month. Um, you know, that's newsworthy. So uh, to the extent that she's got newsworthy things to say, she should be on the air. To the extent that people will watch her, she should be on the yeah. air. And Omarosa, uh, over time, has proven to be pretty pretty good ratings. Um, in terms of, you know, what do we take from Omarosa uh, and the question of her credibility as an actor in all of this, um, because uh, the White House is certainly trying to challenge that, uh, I think you evaluate it the same way that a juror does um, in, say, the Manafort trial when you're dealing with, like, a Rick Gates, right? Yeah. Like, you know that Gates has admitted to doing all these terrible things, right. embezzling money, whatever. So how do I evaluate what Rick Gates says? Well, I look and see if there's, like, evidence of bank fraud or tax fraud right. or failure to register as a foreign agent. Uh, you know, I think that's in the other trial. But is there evidence that backs up what Rick yeah. Gates says? And with Omarosa... She understands that, and she's producing tapes that back yeah. up the things she says. Yeah. Uh, we, we've got a, a clip of uh, the conversation with her and Laura Trump. Let's play. Uh, I think it's a longer clip. It's long, so feel free to interject and tell us to pause okay. when you want it. Hang on one moment. But, listen, obviously with, like, the New York Times article and stuff, you know, it's... it's What's the it New York Times like, article? The one that, the one that, um, it, it was in the New York Times today, I guess you did with Maggie Haberman, or they wrote about you. It sounds a little like, obviously, that there's something you've got in the back pocket to pull out. Clearly, if, if you come on board the campaign, like, we can't have, we got to... Oh, God, no. Everybody okay, let's, let's just stop it there. I think the rest of the clip is they're, are, they're talking about money. Um, I, I again, uh, let me take partisanship out of this. I mean, as somebody who served in the White House um, and who has worked on campaigns, the idea of taping your colleagues is, is fairly extraordinary <laughs> breach of trust. The fact that she did it with John Kelly in the Situation Room is also a security issue. That being said, she's got the tapes, John. I mean, and if she's threatening that she's got a lot more. 
Right, the reports are uh, 200 plus. Um, and look, I mean, I think she's going to try to make money off of it, right? Like the the at the end of the day, you put out a few tapes and then you see which, um, you know, which Democrat or Republican is willing to pay you, you know, 10, 15, 30, 50,000 dollars a tape. I mean, this is this is Omarosa's gold mine potentially. Yeah, and she she is playing this well. I mean, she has both used this to pitch a book, but then she said, "Hey, there's all kinds of stuff I didn't put in my book." And she's just gonna every time the news cycle slows down, she's gonna keep dishing another one of these things out. Yeah, and and they're fascinating. I mean, listening to Laura Trump try to make the quid pro quo in a way that doesn't sound like a quid pro quo <laughs> is, you know, like, well, you know, you're really not going to be able to, you know, talk to the press the way that you know you had, you know, there was the New York Times story and. Like, we know you're a leaker. Like, I mean, you know, all this stuff, all the subtext that's going on in this conversation, and and it, it's not as ham-handed as it could be, right? But it's not smooth. No, and at the end, you know, they, they, this, and we don't need to play the tape. They start talking about the amount of money, and she says 15000 a month, and I know you've got to travel, and but it'd be great if you came to New York a couple times. It sounds like a pretty great gig. I'm getting 15000 a month, and as long as I keep my mouth shut, I can do basically whatever else I want. So it's not bad. No, not bad at all. So is she getting under the president's skin? Oh, for sure. I mean, in a way that very few people have been able to do. Mm. He has, uh, you know, look, people have betrayed him before. But Omarosa is totally a creation of Donald Trump from the sort of Mm -hmm. public imagination. um, And she knows how to play his game. Something that Bill and and I. And she's good. I mean, not not only does she know how to play it, but she's like really good at it. She's really good at it. Something right. that Bill and I were asking guests yesterday was, what do you think the turning point was for Omarosa? Because I'm sure that Trump's antics haven't changed that much since she first met him 14-some-odd years ago back on The Apprentice, right? Yeah, so I mean, I think you're— Why ass- now? But, Ray, I think the, the, the assumption that there was a turning point rather than Omarosa being a consistent character through all of this is somebody who is, um, you know, ambitious and talented and— looking to use the ambition and talent to, in furtherance of her own uh, aggrandizement and, and financial benefit, I think is, uh, I think it's problematic. I'm not sure she turned on him. She, all right, so John, you're suggesting <laughs> that she basically went in with, to the White House with this idea that I'm going to milk, the, I'm, I'm going to parlay this into the, my next gig? Well, she's got all these tapes, right? I know, like, I mean, it, it, it is an odd thing. I mean, look, I, I can sort of see, you know, I, your point is a good one. I can sort of see when things start to go downhill, you tape. I don't, if you've been taping the entire way, that's an odd practice. Right. I mean, you know, if she thought that John Kelly was like uh, going to say something awful to her when he fired her, or if she wanted some proof of what actually happened, in the, you know, to show Donald Trump or something like that, you know, maybe you could understand trying to, to tape something like that. This is like going back and it's like <laughs> through, I mean, going back to the campaign, right? That's and that, actually... I mean, you know, so I, I just think that she's somebody who, um, you know, like Trump understands how to, uh, how to run a PR campaign. Yeah, and... No, and she's doing it masterfully. This is Chris Liu guest hosting for the Bill Press Show. I am here with John Allen, national political reporter for uh, NBC. Um, and you can follow John on Twitter at John Allen DC. You can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLu44. Uh, if you have uh, thoughts, comments, feel free to tweet at BP Show. Uh, John, so Omarosa clearly got under the president's skin um, in a not um, in a fairly transparent move. They then revoke John Brennan's security clearance. Um, 
today's reporting in the Washington Post suggests the president may just start revoking lots of people's. Uh, and their story now seems to have evolved on why they're doing this. What do you make of all this? Well, the president had one reason for doing it, and his uh, aides tried to pretend that it wasn't the reason, right? The president is like, all these people have been against me on Russia, and they've been enemies of me on television. Uh, some of them not so much. Like yeah, Susan, Susan Rice, Rice has not out there on television. Su- yeah. But basically, these people, uh, in his view, uh, conducted a conspiracy to deny him the presidency and then delegitimize his presidency and use their access to information uh, in furtherance of that. So he's preventing them. You know, this is like a retaliation. According to the president, if you you know read the Wall Street Journal, and yeah. things, the aides are like, no, we have to have a different reason, like they breach security or like whatever. They're- and there apparently is supposed to be a process for reviewing the revocation, and they just short circuited the entire thing. To be fair, though, and I think you know, I think you served in an administration where the process was something that they paid a lot of attention to, but <laughs> that's but, an understatement, yeah. But and and sometimes I think to the to the detriment of the administration, absolutely. Um, the president has the authority to do it. Sure. So the president puts processes in place to make sure that he doesn't do things that he shouldn't do, largely, um, and to make sure he has the right advice and you know whatnot. But at the end of the day, the president makes the decision. So if he wants to short-circuit the process, I don't know. I mean, we may think it's the wrong way to do things. It may think it's you know not the best practices for governance, but he has that power. You know, and and we talked about it in the last half hour. We've, you know, you had the Admiral McRaven op-ed yesterday in the Washington Post. You now have overnight the um, statement that the former uh, intelligence officials have now put out uh, criticizing this decision. Where does this all end up? Is it back to a president did this, people criticize, and we just move on to something else? Look, I think some of these people, and it's, it's interesting that McRaven came out individually on this, some of these people can be written off by the president to his base, as he will, as the, the sort of the deep state. Oh, I'm not surprised that the Bush and Obama, you know, CIA directors yeah. would do, you know, X, Y, and Z. McRaven is interesting to me because I think what he said would have been newsworthy absent uh, any of the Brennan stuff. And what he, to me, the line that was important was sort of jarring was, you've embarrassed, in, embarrassed us in front of the eyes of our children. Yeah humiliated us, you know, on the world stage and, you know, and, and divided our nation. And I'm like, McRaven's <laughs> unassailable. He's, I mean, I, of yeah. all the people who are unassailable, <laughs> like, this is the guy that got bin Laden, right? I mean, this is the guy that was on the phone with the president talking about weather, you know, in terms of uh, when they were going to conduct the raid, when they were going to scratch it, when they were going to do it, um, and has this, like, Boy Scout record. Um, you know, you talk about Comey is a Boy Scout, right. or you talk about Petraeus at one point right. was a Boy Scout. Well, the one who still has his reputation intact entirely is McRaven. Um, and and, while and Amer- he's been, I think, I think I've seen some things from him over the last year, but not a lot, actually. Yeah, no, I think I think there's been something in this direction, but not like, I mean, he hasn't just come down full force on the president. Um, and interestingly, in defense of Brennan, who, um, you know, obviously has been uh, his analysis of the president on MSNBC and NBC um, has been critical. You know, I mean, this is not somebody who came out and right. decided that they were going to spend the Trump presidency, um, you know, trying to think about, you know, what that what their commentary meant for the next two or three presidencies and, you know, their ability to be seen as like, you know, necessarily an independent arbiter. Um, do, do, does any of this, I mean, given the way our news cycles go, 
I mean, does the McRaven thing last a day or so and then we kind of move on? Or do you think that will affect anyone's opinion of what's happening right now? Yeah, I think that um, I think that challenging the national security complex over time uh, becomes a problem for the president, particularly if uh, we see more of the people around him uh, in legal trouble. And and I gather the reporting is that Dan Coats was not aware, informed. Consi- what, what was his involvement? Um, so I'm basing this on uh, my colleague Andrea Mitchell. Yeah. I love saying my colleague Andrea Mitchell. It's like, <laughs> it's like I got to be part of something really cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, Andrea Mitchell uh, reported that that Coates was not aware of uh, the decision to to make the revocation. Um, so you know there may have been some discussion. I mean, obviously everyone was aware this was up in the air because yeah. the, the White House had talked about it before, but uh, was apparently not informed uh, yeah. as it was happening. Uh, we've been having a great conversation with John Allen, national political reporter for NBC News. You can follow John on Twitter. Uh, John Allen, D.C. I sincerely hope John has a quiet weekend. I think we all hope that we'll finally have a Saturday morning uh, without a a crazy tweet. Uh, This is The Bill Press Show. We'll be back in a bit. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show, and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. We're back to The Bill Press Show. This is Chris Liu guest hosting for Bill. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at chrislu 44 You can follow uh, the show at Twitter at BP Show. Uh, please subscribe and watch us on YouTube. Uh, I have some friends in Chicago who are listening to me live, and so thank you for doing that. Um, we're, we have a fantastic guest and friend, Uh, But before we do that, I think we have some comments on Twitter. We do. We have lots of people weighing in on Twitter and also in the chat room at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. We're on Twitter at BP Show. So last night we tweeted out that Chris would be guest hosting. And Chris, you have some fans out there. Did you know that? I can I get some more fans? I, I, just, I need. I, I, I'm not supposed to judge my self worth by Twitter followers, but it, you know. If, of course, it you, does maybe have an impact if you're trying yeah. to gain followers. Okay, so one person, Red Peg in South Carolina, said, "I'm tuning in as usual. I cannot wait to hear Chris Lou 44 oh, at Chris Lou 44, there you who go. is my fave person on Twitter to follow and who should run for president." Okay, I this is a I, super I, fan. Okay, that Chris. and that's not even a handle I know. So like I, Ray, I would freely admit to you if if I had something. <laughs> Did to this do. help like bolster? Wow, your now I feel this good. Morning. Yeah, you're feeling and good. And Sochi's right? sitting here laughing because I think Sochi realized how <laughs> absurd me running for president is. Uh, anything else of note? Um, we still have a poll going for we, just a few minutes. Um, it is about the news out of the Vatican. At the time that we posted the poll, um, the Vatican had remained silent, of course, on the report coming out of Pennsylvania. Um, 
So we posed the question, was the silence from the Vatican and Pope Francis following the Pennsylvania report's release surprising to you? 26% of you said yes. 74% of you said no. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, so we have... Uh, <laughs> Ray, I'm just going to... I'm going to break the third... So we have until 8.05. We do. Okay. All right. Um, well, look, I don't, I don't want to jump too much into the conversation right now, but um, we've got Sochi Inahosa. Sochi is the communications director at the DNC. Sochi is actually a very close friend. We work together mm-hmm. uh, for Tom Perez. Uh, we've got just a couple minutes before we have to break. I always ask my friends this question. Are, are you having fun? I'm having a blast, although I will tell you that the resistance is tough, but it is one that I'm excited about. Um, so, yes, I'm having a lot of fun. It's great to be here. Um, we, we have worked, uh, both worked for Tom Perez. Sochi was the press secretary uh, when Tom was the secretary of labor and I was the deputy secretary. Uh, we always say that, you know, once you work for Tom Perez, you basically kind of always work for Tom <laughs> Perez. Um, it is it's like the longest job I will ever hold. And I won't even get paid for all of like the time I spent <laughs> doing things for Tom. Um, it's been a busy summer. It has been a busy summer. Um, we're going to be talking to Sochi. Um, uh, I don't want to jump too much into the conversation because we will need to break. Um, the DNC has its uh, meeting in um, in Chicago next mm-hmm. week. Um, what are the big things on the plate? So four big reforms, superdelegates, um, primaries, caucuses, and um, party reforms. And all of these are reforms to our 2020 nominating process. So there will be some major reforms coming up um, that I can get into detail about. But these are the things that everybody is watching for just because we haven't had these kinds of reforms in decades. So this will be the first time that our our Democratic Party has actually really kind of um, gotten into exactly how we make our party more transparent and inclusive. And, and it's important to understand, I mean, this comes out of, you know, the, 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 frankly, to say the fight, the battle of the 2016 convention mm-hmm. with Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Uh, we are now two years removed from that, and we mm-hmm. still seem to be uh, dealing with this. So it's actually good that we um, are having a chance to sort of put this to bed because we've got some bigger battles ahead do, do you guys get any vacation or is this like you, you're going to do this crazy how many days until election day like okay, yeah it's, it's like 80 yeah something. it's about 80 so it's there it, it's it, like we, f- we don't get a vacation it's like a full-time sprint <laughs> um i was talking to my mom last night who we were talking about trump and she was just saying you guys better do something and so very shortly we will be back with sochi inahosa to talk about what are we going to do we'll be video bill's commentary the best clips from the show all in one place youtube.com slash the bill press show good morning everyone welcome back to the bill press show we are live from our studios uh near capitol hill actually in capitol hill uh in washington dc this is chris Liu guest hosting for bill on a muggy august friday which is kind of typical around here uh, please follow me on Twitter at ChrisLu44. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at BP Show. Uh, we've been having 
a bit of a conversation. We're going to have more with Sochi Inahosa. Uh, Sochi is the communications director at the DNC. Sochi, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Sochi and I worked together for Tom Perez uh, at the Labor Department. Mm-hmm. It seems like an eternity ago that we were there. I know. It seems like the Obama administration just seems like dec- a decade ago. But I know. Okay. We're just, uh, Sochi and I are friends, <laughs> so we're going to like have a conversation like we would have if we were at a happy hour. How do you feel when you drive past the Labor Department or any federal agency now? It um, it pains me a little bit. Yeah, especially I'm sad. it it makes me sad. The other point, I mean, I think it makes me sad when I when I drive by DOL. It makes me really sad when I drive by the Department of Justice yeah. too. And that is just because I feel for the career employees yeah. there. I mean, I feel like the way that they have been treated both at DOL and DOJ and just the work that they amazing work that they do every day and now it just really does pay me that they don't necessarily have respect for the agencies and the mission of the agencies um so yeah it's it's tough it's tough living in dc at the at a time when you have a president like this and i should also say so she worked with tom uh, perez when he was the assistant attorney general for civil rights and so she's mm-hmm. been with uh, tom in multiple positions and now uh, most importantly, all, all of our hopes and prayers are basically riding on Tom uh, and Sochi. Um, I always tell people that one of the happiest days I had uh, after November uh, 2016 was when Tom became chairman of the DNC, because I think Sochi and I both know um, his passion uh, for the job. Uh, I asked you before we we, we, we um, jumped to this segment whether you were having fun. Is Tom having fun? He is having fun, but I will tell you that he is worried every single day that <laughs> we are. Um, he wants to take back the House. He obviously wants to win in 2020. And so I think that these are the issues that keep him up at night. So while I do think he's having fun, I do think that, you know, there is a burden um, and a lot of pressure to make sure that we are doing everything that we can. And so he, you know, brings I know that he brought you in, Chris, yeah. to kind of help with the transition when he first started, um, he does not keep you far because no, you are not. on the DNC I am a now. DNC member, so <laughs> one of the more thankless jobs is being an at-large member of the DNC. Yeah, so um, he, you know, he knows that there's major reforms that need to happen in the party, and he's working on doing those, and he knows that we need to win, and it takes a lot to do that. It doesn't happen overnight, so as you know, he gets very antsy yeah. and wants things to happen right away. Um, and so that's that's kind of what he's dealing with. But we've made good progress, and that's what's important. You know, I always, you know, it, you're never as smart as you are when you're winning, and you're never as stupid as you are when things are going wrong. And I and I know you can relate to this. And I know Tom especially can, and I can. Um, when Democrats do well in an election, even if we had nothing to do with it, people compliment us as if we had something to do. When we don't do as well as we should, then people blame us. And I and I simply say to all of you out there, like we're not as all powerful as you think we are. Uh, but that being said, one of the reasons why I was so excited when Tom got the job is there you will never outwork Tom Perez. Um, he he night and day will be thinking about how to bring our country back. And so. For those of you on Twitter who love to bash the Democrats, who love to bash Tom, just lay off him. The guy is working his butt off. And so I can say that. So I'm sure Sochi would say that as well. <laughs> yes, I would say that. So we started talking before um, we went to break um, about the DNC summer meeting, which is in Chicago next week. And one of the big issues on the plate is what we do about superdelegates. Why don't you tell the listeners who may not be that familiar um, how we got to where we are um, and what the proposal moving forward is? 
So superdelegates are an interesting group of um, delegates in our, no in our 2020 or in our nominating process. Basically, superdelegates have always put in place, they are aside from the contests that we have in, let's say, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, and the primary states. Um, once those states are decided, the purpose of superdelegates, you know, came about so that they, they are a group of elected officials, they're party leaders, they're President Obama, former presidents of the United States, former DNC chairs, just people who could influence our presidential process. And, um, you know, I think some people saw it as a way to make sure that we have the best nominee possible and it reflected the leaders of the party um, and that they had a say in who our nominee was going to be. Over the last 10 or so years, this, this, is a, this was an issue in 2016, but it was also an issue in 2008 with Hillary Clinton and Barack mm -hmm. Obama. And a lot of people forget that. They think it's about Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. But really, if you go back to 2008, superdelegates were a big issue. They hurt, you know, Hillary Clinton at the time. You know, she had a large number of superdelegates. I think it's one of, one of the things as we look to our last two presidential, um, contested presidential um, primary processes, um, is that one of the main things is that it ends up hurting our nominee. And so there is a perception that superdelegates are going to overturn the will of the people. And that has been the biggest concern. And as our party grows and as we see a lot of people rise up and who haven't been part of a political party for a long time, the distrust in the party comes from one of the issues is superdelegates. They believe that our party leaders will end up reversing the will of the people. And they don't like that, right? Whether it is true or right. not, right? So what we'll be considering at the DNC meeting, major reforms to this process. They tried to do it in 2009 after Barack Obama became president. It did not happen. So this is a huge thing that's happening because it's taken a lot of work. There have been the Unity Reform Commission that was put in place by Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton and some people from um, that Tom Perez chose as well, worked on this for about seven months or so. And now the Rules and Bylaws Committee of the DNC, which governs the changes to your, to our rules and to our charter, um, they have been taking this up over the last few months and have spent 80 hours debating this issue. Um, and so it's one of these things that we have spent a lot of time on, and I think that it will pass next week, and it will pass because we are trying to engage those who have been who have felt that they're not part of our party anymore. And I think it will do a lot to rebuild trust and transparency. And so basically the proposal is that superdelegates would not necessarily have um, – they wouldn't necessarily be able to reverse the will of the people, and they wouldn't be voting on the first ballot. They would allow the primary states to do that. The only way that they would vote is if they weren't going to reverse the will of the people and someone came in with enough votes in order for them not to influence the process. So we're really excited about it. Um, I think that it will be a, a meeting that is a historic meeting, um, and it will bring momentum as we head into the 2018 election because that's around the corner, and we need to pivot immediately to win. Yeah. So in the spirit of full disclosure, I am on the Rules and Bylaws Committee, and I didn't <laughs> sit through all 80 hours of this conversation. It felt like 80 hours, uh, but I was there through most of it. Uh, I am also a superdelegate, and so I voted uh, to basically take away my own power, my own superpowers as a superdelegate. It is important, I think, to put this in context. And I think there's been a lot of um, misinformation on, frankly, on all sides of this. I mean, if you go back to 2016, whether you look at primary, uh, whether you look at 
delegates won through primaries, mm -hmm. caucuses, or superdelegates. Hillary Clinton won all of them. Yep. So superdelegates did not change uh, who our nominee was. But to be fair, the idea that so many superdelegates lined up in her favor so early may have contributed to that sense of momentum, mm -hmm. much as those of us who worked on the Obama campaign in 2007, 2008, saw the same thing. Uh, we had uh, on the Obama campaign a lot of money, a lot of uh, energy, and yet the party leaders were coming out against us. Not against us, they were for, for Hillary Clinton. Um, it is an interesting thing, you know, if you look at, you know, the Iowa caucuses or the New Hampshire primaries, these things will be fought over for a year or so. And what may happen is that the vote totals are sufficiently close so that the difference in delegates won by the first and second place person is one or two, which is essentially equivalent to me. I can overturn the will of the people of Iowa and New Hampshire, and that sort of seems wrong to me. So um, is it going to be a contentious meeting? Should I be prepared with when I go to Chicago next week? I think that it will be there will be a lot of it'll be spirited. There, it'll be spirited. It'll be a spirit. Every Democratic <laughs> meeting is spirited. We're we, Democrats. We, exactly. We all like to we all have opinions. So I think there will be a lot of opinions. But I think that this will pass. And I think that, um, you know, it needs a majority of DNC members to vote on it. So, yes, DNC members will be voting to strip themselves of their own power. Um, which I think that's why it's a little contentious. But I think people realize we need to move in this direction if we want to grow the party. Yeah, and I will say this to all of my fellow DNC delegates. Uh, you are some of the most dedicated people I have met outside of public service. You um, give uh, day in, day out, not only to the DNC, but to your state parties um, mm -hmm. to, to help um, create greater opportunity for all people. And um, this is in no way meant to be a slight on any one of you. Uh, but I understand certainly the feelings. Mm -hmm. So we, um, if it's a Tuesday, it's election day. We had a primary um, on Tuesday. I sort of heard a funny, two funny takes that came out of Tuesday. One is all of the firsts of yeah. people who won primaries in the Democratic Party. But then I heard this other narrative that, oh, Democrats went boring in the Midwest uh, in our gubernatorial mm -hmm. picks. Um, yet, ironically, actually, I think whether it's Michigan, whether it's Wisconsin or Minnesota, the boring choice on our side, the quote-unquote boring choice, I should say, may end up being the winning choice. Um, and some of these firsts are really historic firsts. Uh, what was your take on last Tuesday? So if you're talking about boring when it comes to <laughs> that, um, I would say that electing women is not boring. No, 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 so no, no. whoever is saying yeah. that. Um, but I think one of the trends that we have seen um, over the last few months is that women are not only standing up and they're not only making their voices heard, but they're actually running. And so we saw this um, now – about half of the women or half of the nominees for gubernatorial races, the Democratic nominees who are not incumbents, half of them are women, which is huge. We haven't seen this before. Um, and so if you look at Vermont, you had the first yeah. transgender um, individual there, which is huge for our party. You know, if you look at Connecticut, you have the first black woman who is a teacher. Yeah. I think this is a big deal because as you see teachers rise up and speak out for better wages, they're actually running for office and getting elected. We've seen the same thing in Oklahoma where teachers are running for office. You haven't seen this before. Um, you've normally seen career politicians or people who are attorneys or other, no um, no offense to those who have run. No but, offense I mean, taken. No, no. no offense, but 
But there are teachers who are out there that are making their voices heard. In Minnesota, you have um, the first um, Somali-American who was elected to Congress there in that district. Um, so there are we are making history across the board. Um, and I think that there are a lot of strong women running. And I in, in, in situations where, you know, you have multiple candidates in the field, women always tend to rise up. This yeah. happened in Texas. This ha- this is happening all over in primaries, which really gives me hope. And I think that will put us in a strong position to win in November because people want to see women and people that look like them. Yeah outvote, you know, representing them. And so this is a big change in our Democratic Party that only helps us. You know, I was struck. um, I remember, I think it was like May of last year when uh, Trump and Pence did a meeting in the cabinet room when they were trying to repeal health care and they brought in House Republicans. And there was a stunning photo of all white men, House Republicans, talking about stripping health care away from a lot of not only white people, people of color, women, poor people. And again, leaving aside the the policies, you had this sense, I had this country would be a lot better off if we had people that represented the diversity of this country. I was actually sort of surprised that we will get the first African-American woman in Connecticut, which is a yeah. progressive state. And it makes you realize that not only, despite the progress we have made, um, we are not, uh, our, the people that represent us are really not as diverse as we often think they should be. I think that's right. I think the Democratic Party has done a really good job, unlike the Republican Party, to really lift up the candidates who re- who look like us, who look like our country for those districts. Right. And I think that that's why we've been making history. And the best part about it is that because the Democratic Party is finally giving them the tools before, you know, the reason why we didn't have diversity is because. We weren't supporting our candidates the way we needed to support them. And now we are giving not only the Democratic Party, but the groups around the country, whether it is the training, whether it is making sure they know how to fundraise so that they are competitive in these districts. And so in giving them the tools so that they succeed and end up running and winning um, and supporting them as much as possible. So that's why we've invested everywhere across the country and are helping a lot of these candidates get over the finish line in November. You know, the other narrative that I saw this week that was annoying, I I will say, was uh, there's been a narrative for the last couple of weeks about the split within the party between Mm -hmm. the left and the center. There's been another article. The New York Times had this piece about how um, Democrats have decided we're not having a national message. We're just going to let candidates run on their own message. Why isn't it the right thing that we should find candidates that fit the district? Candidates in those districts should run on the message that they think they can win. I don't. This, I, it, to me, it feels like another. Again, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say fake news because that just plays right into the president's hands. Another effort to sort of create division and conflict where there really is none. I don't think that Washington should be telling candidates how to message themselves, and and that's just because they know their districts the best. I think you're right about that. I think they know exactly what the the issues that people care about um they know about you know a road that needs to be fixed their infrastructure is an issue obviously we know that healthcare and the economy continue to be the top two issues in a lot of these areas um i think that you have also you have people on the left and people who um are towards the center who are all running on healthcare no one is running away from the democratic agenda which i think says a lot about the democratic party 
And on the other hand, all I'm going to say is Tim Paul empty. Like you <laughs> have, you know, it is a situation where they try to say that the Democratic Party is so divided. But just look at the Republican yeah. Party right now. It is the it is the party of Trump. And I think that a lot of people who are towards the center um, who have run and been part of the Republican Party for a long time don't feel like they have a home with the Democratic Party. You see various opinions. We might have different opinions on how to get there. But it is clear that we want to raise wages, that we want to make sure that everybody has health care, that we want to make sure that we have funding for our infrastructure. All of these things are Democratic values that Democrats run on, whether you are in a Trump 12 district or whether or not it's a safe Democratic district. And so I think that that's how the Democratic Party and the Republican Party really differ right now, because the Republican Party can't figure out no. exactly how to move forward. And they're not winning elections since they've elected Trump. They have, you know, lost 43 state legislative seats um, and the Democrats have flipped those. They have lost the some of the largest um, races in 2017 and 2018, with Alabama being and Pennsylvania being one some of the top two. And so I think that they are in a really tough time right now, while Democrats are united when it comes to their message yeah. on the issues that they're focused on. And it goes back to the conversation we were just having about Chicago and it being a spirited conversation because we're the Democrat Democratic Party. Uh, we are the biggest of big tents and it's noisy and it's crazy and we don't often get along, but we welcome everybody to our party. And I think the Palenti thing is an interesting one. If folks did not have a chance, there's a um, uh, Morning Joe played it the other day. It was from the Republican uh, gubernatorial debate, Palenti and whoever the guy that won was. Um, arguing about who liked Trump more and who had dissed Trump the most after Access Hollywood. And this is a gubernatorial debate to pick the nominee in uh, in, uh, in Minnesota. And they're arguing about who likes Trump more instead of about the issues that matter. And obviously the establishment candidate, Tim Pawlenty, former governor, well-respected, probably could have held that seat mm -hmm. or won that seat, I guess, because it's a Democrat held, lost. Uh, Tim Walz, who's going to be a fantastic, uh, is a fantastic congressman and mm -hmm. will be a fantastic governor, uh, has a, a much easier road now because they picked the guy who likes Trump most. So um, <laughs> it is it's a little nutty right it now. It is nutty. Um, so looking at the polling and I don't want to get into the generic ballot because there's all kinds of issues with the generic ballot. Um, clearly, Democratic enthusiasm is the is higher than it has been really even before 2006. Um, the group that still doesn't quite have had that enthusiasm is young people. Mm -hmm. And on for young people in particular, um, heavily progressive group, mm -hmm. may not necessarily identify themselves as the Democratic Party mm -hmm. and obviously are the lowest propensity voters. Uh, what is the party doing to make sure these people show up to vote in November? We're having conversations with them. I think that the problem that we had over the last sort of four years, Barack Obama, you know, I think was tremendous help to our party in engaging young people. Um, I think that it was very hard for the party to then capture that energy and take it in and translate it to other candidates. And so what we have been doing is just having conversations with them. They want someone to to reach out to them. They want to have those conversations. And so we've been organizing not only on campuses, but in areas where we know that, you know, in areas where and partnering with people where, you know, the Democratic Party hasn't been before. And so it's a lot of partnership with people like Swing Left and organizations that aren't necessarily 
part of the Democratic Party, but are reaching Democrats. And we have the shared goal of going out and electing um, Democratic candidates. And so we have been um, making sure that we are organizing in these communities, but then partnering with some of these key organizations who have done a lot of great work. I think that a lot of young people have come out to march. You know, if you go to um, if you were at the March for Our Lives yeah. or the Women's March, you there were young people there that d- likely did not vote in the 2016 election or for the first time are registered to vote. And so a lot of what we're doing as well is trying to register people as they come out and turn 18 and um, and finally, you know, are want to make their voices heard. Um, and that's a big part of it. You, you see a lot of the Parkland students kind of out there. I think they will also play a big role in this election, given that they are out there and they are organizing. They want to make sure that we are passing um, gun reforms. And so they are taking it on themselves as well to help sort of register people and their colleagues and reach these folks, because we know how important it is. The only way that we're going to do that is if we elect Democrats. Yeah. No. And I think, it, again, tying everything back to the reforms that the party is making, you know, one of the biggest criticisms I heard as a, uh, a member of the Rules Committee was states that have um, registrations before primaries mm-hmm. months and months in advance where you have to declare yourself to be a Democrat or Republican, um, in contrast to the ones that have open primaries. And I think one of the challenges we face as Democrats is that when I go into college campuses, most college campuses are fairly progressive. Yet when I go and speak to the young Democrats there, there's not a lot of people who show up for those meetings. Mm -hmm. So how do we create the biggest possible party where people align with us because of our our stand on issues as opposed to just party affiliation? And I think with young voters in particular, they might swing back and forth. But I think at this moment in history, whether it's on jobs, whether it's on health care, whether it's on uh, racial tolerance, they're more closely, more closely assigned aligned with where we are right now. And we have to be able to tap into that energy. And a lot of it is um, electing Democrats that look like these students, like, look exactly like these right. people, yeah. right? And so what's happening is you do have young people running all across the country who have never run before. Um, there's an organization called Run for Something where they have done a lot of work of rec- recruiting candidates um, and especially younger candidates who are finally out there running and they're winning. Um, and so I think that that will help a lot. I think that, you know, I do agree that our party reforms will help build trust in, you know, when it comes to the party. And I think that if you look at overall registration, registration is key. And this is something that I think that goes unnoticed is the Democratic Party has the registration advantage. And we've had that registration advantage as of recently, and especially in a lot of key states like Florida, like Nevada. Um, And if that holds and if we're able to increase it, then that will only help us. And a lot of those folks are young people. Right. And so it's making sure that we continue that lead and that we only do more to widen that gap. Yeah. And I think one of the smart things that uh, Tom Perez has done as chairman is recognizing the Democratic Party can't control everything. (laughs) We don't control the entire ecosystem Mm -hmm. of Democratic politics. And it's working with our allies in labor, environment, mm-hmm. and the choice community with the various resistance groups, with the state parties, and recognizing, you know, yes, we're the, the not we, you are part of the Democratic National Committee, but there's so many other allied groups who are working at at the field level 
who understand not only the candidates, but the politics and the policies of those areas. And Republicans don't have that. I will say that um, it is very interesting because if you're looking at the Democratic Party, and I like to say the Democratic ecosystem, it's not just the DNC. It is all of these groups. It is labor. Um, it is making sure, you know, it is flippable. It is all of these groups, even the new groups. Everyone says, are you worried that there are all of these new groups and people are, you know, what's going to happen to the Democratic Party? Actually, no, I'm not worried. I'm quite excited about it too. because they only help our party grow. While the Republican Party, they don't have that infrastructure. They don't have that ecosystem. And if I were them, I'd be worried. You know, you have dozens of organizations that are all working to elect Democrats. That is worrisome for the Republican Party. And so I think that uh, that will only help us win in November. So I think we are, are running towards the end of the segment. Before we wrap this up, I just want to, I, I didn't prepare you for this. What's, <laughs> what's a candidate who may not be on the national radar, who you're really excited about, or what's a development or phenomena that people might not be talking about that they will be talking about right around Election Day? This is, I have so many. This, okay. is, this is a <laughs> tough one. Um, one thing that I think will... Um, that people will talk about around election day. And I it, it's more of a strategy than anything else. I think that um, we are, as we go and knock on doors and as we go and call voters, and you know this, yeah. you've knocked on doors before yeah. and how we reach voters. One of the biggest things that we need are moving off of and at least trying to do more of is text messaging voters yep. directly. And this goes back to reaching young voters. I think that people are kind of done answering their yeah. doors now. I don't answer answering. my door. I don't answer my exactly. My, yeah. They don't. They don't pick up their phone. Yeah. Their home phone anymore. People don't. I don't have a home phone. Um, and so I think that we are now text messaging voters and doing that via SMS, right? And doing everyone. We know that people are mobile first now. Yeah. And so this is one thing that the Democratic Party has changed and has really switch to because we know we also get more volunteers who want to text message voters too, right? So I think that this is going to be something that worked for us in Alabama that I think will work for us again in November. That's a great trend. Mm -hmm. Sochi Inahosa, the communications director for the Democratic National Committee and a former colleague and current <laughs> friend and always friend. Uh, thank you for being here. Good Thanks luck. Thanks so much for having me. on TV and online. This is The Bill Press Show. Welcome to The Bill Press Show. For the last half hour, this is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill on a muggy Friday morning in Washington, D.C. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. You can follow the show at Twitter at BP Show. Um, and please send us your comments. And we'll, we may try to get to them. And if we can't, um, I will try to respond to them afterwards. Uh, we are so honored to have Congressman Don Beyer here. Um, please follow Don on Twitter. Congressman, I should say. Not call Don. You Don. 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 Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Twitter at uh, Rep Don Beyer. Um, I feel like I can call you Don because you actually are my congressman as well. And Ray Rogers, our producer, is also your constituent as well. Yeah. So I have to ask you, like, I, I know what one does as a congressman. Do people run into you at the Safeway and go, hey, why isn't my road paved? Why is my trash getting paved? And they don't realize that's not the yeah, federal government. Yeah. Or yeah, <clears throat> No, uh, they, they don't actually. It's been pretty nice. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have this weird thing that, you know, I've, I've been here. We've, the family's been in business right. selling cars for 45 years. Yeah, we were all uh, just touting your cars. And we decided yeah. we didn't want to make you plug. We were all no, plugging no, for no, you. No, 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 but no. But that's been a lot of advertising. So I'm in this weird position where I've, very high name recognition, 
and nobody knows what I look like. So, so I can go to a restaurant everywhere, and no one ever. People are probably more likely to at, tell you about the cars they bought from you instead but of the, actually, yeah, yeah. And we discovered in the uh, in the primary a couple of years ago that the overlap between Volvo owners and Democratic oh, primary geez. voters is like one to one. It's a, a great advantage. So, so uh, Congressman Beyer has served as Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, Ambassador to Switzerland. Um, he is representing the 8th Congressional District of Virginia, um, serves on the Science Committee, the Natural Resources Committee, uh, is the co-chair of the Safe Climate Caucus. Uh, before we went on the air, uh, the congressman and I were just talking about, you know, the routine of just dealing with Trump. And this is a conversation we had with John Allen in our uh, second half hour segment. Um, I remember when Saturday mornings were kind of a quiet time and you know no news is going to happen and you just kind of and and this idea that I I'm going to I I look at my phone with dread as to what might come out yeah. of the president's mouth through Twitter do, do you have that same uh, feeling as well yeah you know chris one of the very first uh, aphorisms i learned in politics was that uh, a, a week's a long time in politics yeah just cuz you're ahead on yeah. saturday doesn't mean uh, and now with trump it's like an hour is a long time uh, you just never know what's coming. And uh, so you have to be on your toes all the time. I'm very lucky because i got a great team. Uh, w- one of the young men who works for me, very talented, he's got <clears throat> three computer screens on his desk. Each one has six columns of Twitter feeds. So he's following like 18 <laughs> Twitter feeds at, in real time just to, trying to figure out what's coming next. So how do we were just talking about this. How do you decide what you all react to and what you don't react to? I mean, I think it's the same challenge that the media has. What is news and what's not news when he's out there tweeting? Yeah, it's hard. You know, we, we, we start with, you know, what are the core things that, that I'm concerned about? There are 500 issues out there. Right. And we've tried to say, look, let's do climate change, number one. Let's do income inequality. Let's do women's economic empowerment. Let's try to move forward on gun safety. Yeah, you know, a handful, a couple more. I'm doing a lot on suicide prevention. Um, but with Trump, when he says the, the things that are most outrageous, the things that you don't ever want to point to your children and say, look, admire that, um, there's, there's almost a, a command performance to respond in a constructive way and to say, uh, this is unacceptable. This is not the way presidents are, should I, be. I feel like we could say that 10 times a day. We probably could, yeah. It's just remarkable. I was thinking president after president. Um, Democrat, Republican have all presented themselves as uniters. Certainly, you know, Ronald Reagan's Morning in America or George W. Bush's Compassion and Conservatism. It, it doesn't always work that way. And it often it ends up being divisive. I mean, for example, but this is the first president I've ever seen who who sets out to divide us from the first thing that when he wakes up. You know, um, you did a uh, there was a piece about you in The Washington Post magazine. And I tweeted this out multiple times because I love this line that you said. You said, I haven't found any value that he, the president, epitomizes that I respect, that I appreciate. I'm sorry to say that. There's not a single thing that the president has done that I would turn to my children and say, emulate that. And that's striking to me. I I don't have kids, but I have nephews, nieces. One of my nephews is outside right now. I look at the way he conducts himself, and that's not what you teach young people to do. Absolutely not. And, Chris, I read once that the most important way we learn through role models— and so as a, as a father and a grandfather, you know, I do my darndest to be a good role model for the kids, figuring that you, know, you can lecture them all you want, yeah. but they don't get that. But they watch and see what right. you do. My dad died at 94 about seven months ago, and in the little celebration slash funeral, all we were talking about was 
not the things he did, but who he was. Right. And uh, some some guy years ago said that who a leader is is more important than what he or she does. And with with Trump, you get just the worst possible example. And, so, and even now, I say there. There's just nothing that he does that I want my kids to emulate. So I want to make sure we talk about some policy, but uh, let me just finish up this. Um, do you think our politics have gone to a place that we can't bring back civility, decency with the next president? Or as you know, once 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 you the box has been opened, you can't get everything back in again. No, I th- I think we can definitely turn it around. Um, I mean, look, look, Trump's turned it around in a bad way. Yeah, he had eight years of Barack Obama. Yeah. Yeah, I, I loved him and very much appreciated his policies. But even if you didn't like the things, some of the things that he did, you have to say this was a guy who was a good father, a good husband. Yeah. Who, who, and and was there a single scandal in those eight years? <laughs> I mean, not a single one. And uh, you, you, you know, because you were part of that White House. I, I was, the, and the, so this is this is a great segue, Don, to scandals. Um, you have been one of the leaders in really trying to hold. Uh, the Trump administration's feet to the fire on ethics. And you are incredibly outspoken about Scott Pruitt. Uh, you are also now um, um, highlighting um, the policies, the ethics of Ryan Zinke. I, I would note uh, with some amusement, you are the ranking member of the subcommittee on oversight within the science committee. Not a lot of oversight happening right now. <clears throat> no, no, no one else wanted the job. <laughs> um, I mean, are you are you floored as well that the things that would have been a major scandal uh, during a previous administration are just kind of, you know, going unchecked right now. Yeah, it's really disappointing. In in the last administration, the, the, I served the last two years right. of Obama, uh, I think we had Gina McCarthy from the EPA in three or four or five times. We wanted to talk about that the text messages to her husband about what time she was coming over right. for dinner were deleted. Scott Pruitt, on the other hand, must have set a record for a number yeah. of unethical things he did in his yeah, two years, and yet the, the science committee refused to call him in to talk not just about his ethical lapses, but about all the astonishing changes he was making within the EPA. Yeah, it, it is. It's it's striking, and it goes back to this whole Trump phenomena. There's so much stuff going on. I don't know how much of it is deliberate uh, in trying to sort of create so much chaos. It's hard to focus, but it is hard because there's both the noise of his tweets. Uh, but there are real policy changes that are happening. There are real ethics scandals that are happening that it gets hard to focus on all of the different things. Yeah, it, it gets overwhelming. And <clears throat> there's the the Trump personality stuff, <clears throat> calling people dogs and right. Um, you know, the, the, the criticizing, the tearing down, the dividing. <clears throat> but on the other hand, structurally, he has put people in place in all these different agencies that um, – it, with the the old fox guarding the hen house. Yeah. So you have Betsy DeVos, who owns private schools, putting her in charge of education and then tilting all of the things towards uh, the things that make her money and her family money. So you know, the Obama administration put in some really thoughtful, strict, constructive restrictions on these for-profit universities where people get buried in debt and never can get a job. Well, that Betsy owns some of those, so yeah. let's take those restrictions off. And that happens agency after agency after agency. Yeah. This is Chris Liu. I'm guest hosting for Bill on a Friday. Uh, we are here with Congressman Don Beyer. Please follow him on Twitter at Rep Don Beyer. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris Liu 44 Well, let's talk about some of those policies. I know climate change is an important issue to you. Um, I was struck. I just got back <clears throat> from a week of vacation in Europe, and I know you were the 
ambassador to Switzerland, they have a much greater appreciation for the dangers of climate change than we do in this country. Uh, and I'm just, I mean, uh, the science is clear. You're on the science committee. Um, the evidence around us is all incredibly clear, and yet we seem to be going backwards. And and I think, again, trying to figure out what is relevant and not relevant with all of this uh, Trump noise, climate change may be one of his most lasting legacies, and not in a good way. In a very bad way. We still, Chris, I think we're the only country in the world there, there's a significant percentage of our population that denies climate change is real. It's very discouraging. It's certain, nobody in Europe. I was in Switzerland and Liechtenstein, and you could literally see their glaciers retreat right. 100 yards a year. They would have photos of what it looked like in 2005 and 2010 and then 2015. Um, but I, I'm not that pessimistic. California has already hit the Paris goals. Even though Trump said we're pulling out, we're legally committed to Paris through the, his first term. Hopefully there won't be a second term. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and s- states and localities, governors, they pretty much get it. And our little uh, – <clears throat> our Climate Solutions Caucus had six Republicans on it in the last Congress. We now have 50 Republicans on it. Now, some say, well, this is just political cover for them. But to be willing to, to come to a caucus and say, I believe climate change is real, it's man-made, we have to do something about it, it's an important first step. So I want to ask you about that. I mean, I, you know, I spent a long time on Capitol Hill as well, and I know sometimes when the, once the cameras are turned off, um, people who you might uh, criticize publicly – are pretty decent people. They they want to do the right thing. But there's no great incentive for them really to kind of stick their necks out. How do you get those people to really take action in a meaningful way? It's been uh, very frustrating. One of the, you know, because as you say, most of the people up there are, are nice people, they're good people. I have, <clears throat> I keep a spreadsheet. I have, I have 70 Republican friends in the House that I actually <laughs> consider friends. You know, that not just hello, Chris. I love that you have friends. that list. It's kind of the opposite of Trump's enemies yeah, list. You no, have the no. people you like. No, I, don't, I don't have an enemies list. And, uh, and I like to get to 100. Um, but they are politically afraid. I mean, they look at Mark Sanford. Yeah. Sanford spoke out against the president, weighs in, and beats him in the primary. Um, the, the, the woman, uh, Martha Roby in Martha Alabama. Roby, right. Yeah. It only when she embraced the president right. did he come back, and then she wins her primary. And let's not so, forget, these are deeply conservative people. Their policies are completely in sync. It's just simply the fact that they might have criticized the president's personal conduct that they got in trouble politically. Yeah, yeah exactly. So we'll, uh, I'm hoping, and this may be a naive hope, but what the hell, the, uh, that if the Democrats take back the House in November, and we're, we're in the majority next time, that those moderate Republicans in the minority will be a little braver about being willing to work with us. Uh, certainly, one of the frustrations with Ryan and with Boehner before him was there were a lot of good centrist legislation, center-left, center-right, we could have passed if they'd been willing to work with Democrats. But they don't. They want to do everything just with their base. And given that some of their base is you know, Freedom Caucus, Tea Party, uh, that means everything is way too far right. You know, I've always said I think one of the mistakes that this president has made is that, there, as you say, there there are – centrist policies. There is an immigration deal to be cut. Absolutely. There absolutely is one. And if this president would do it, it would be a huge win from him from a policy perspective, but a political perspective as well. There's an infrastructure deal to be cut. There are a lot of things we could be doing, but if you go hard right, you're not going to get that. There are gun measures. There are gun measures. That are very sensible that that most members of the NRA agree with. And yet, uh, but the hard right just kills it. This immigration bill, you know, you got 
you know, almost a million DACA kids at risk right now. Yeah. The, the so-called herd Aguilar. So Will Hurd's a moderate Republican from Texas, yeah. Pete, Democrat from California. I think that would fly through the, the House and the Senate. But they don't let us vote on it. Instead, they put things up that are so conservative, even the Republicans won't vote for it. You know, in uh, the Steve Miller bill, basically. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, the, the state that the Commonwealth that we are both from, which is Virginia. And you've had a chance to sort of see the evolution of where Virginia has come, you know, just from your days as lieutenant governor to where it is now. Um, we have something pretty remarkable. We have some amazing women candidates who uh, are running uh, for the House who have a better than even shot of winning some of these races. That's yeah, remarkable. Yeah. It is really exciting. Half of the Democratic candidates taking on incumbent Republicans this year across the country are, are women, which is really pretty neat. I, I predicted, um, I don't. I think responsibly, that by 2024, half of the Democratic caucus in Congress will be women, uh, which is a very different thing. Remember, it was, wasn't that long ago that yeah. um, you know, people were f- first coming in. And, and in Virginia... The four seats that Charlie Cook and all this right. would say that Democrats could take back um, all have women candidates who are hardworking, they're smart, they're good fundraisers, they're totally committed. Um, it's really going to be fun to, to watch and see how they do. I, I think people for, people forget how much Virginia has just changed. In the, I've, you know, I've been living here for about 20 years, how much it's changed in the last 20 years. And yet, you know, we see traces and we see the tensions of the past that played out most dramatically in Charlottesville last year. Yeah. And the the clash of the old South versus where we are in in the new Virginia. Um, where do you think Virginia is as a state in terms of not politically, um, because that's a whole separate issue, but in terms of our values, in terms of um, where we are? I th- I think we're in a really good place, um, and I don't say that just because I am a Democrat. Sure, we we have won ten straight statewide right. elections as Democrats. We're still a purple state. But, yeah, you know, we were the first state to elect a black governor, Doug mm-hmm. Wilder. I was on the ticket with him, 89. We just elected Justin Fairfax, an African-American lieutenant governor. Um, we didn't need to do that, um, but he was just the best candidate, and people didn't really see race. They didn't see color because we're not – it's not like we're a 40 percent black state. Maybe 12, 13, 14 percent. Um, so I, I – and, and I think Terry McAuliffe, when he was governor, pointed out with the Charlottesville deal – he said, go home. <laughs> Very few of those people were from Virginia. They came there because it, Charlottesville and the, the Robert E. Lee statue was great symbolism, but they weren't who we are. Yeah. No, I remember when um, Ralph Northam was running for governor last year. I mean, he was sort of holding out like, look, when we have tolerant policies, that's good for businesses. And he was sort of yeah. pointing across the border to North Carolina what they were doing on transgender bathrooms. And he said, look, if, you know, if, 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 People don't, NCAA doesn't want to hold your tournament there. Hey, come across the border. We'll happily host you. When you have a more tolerant uh, political environment, that's good for businesses. Absolutely. And look at business leadership because business leadership is incredibly diverse right now. I mean, they're coming, uh, our leaders come from all over the country, as do our professors, um, as does Congress. You look at uh, the number of Asian Pacific Islanders and African Americans, the huge Hispanic caucus. Um, Congress is beginning to at least. The Democratic side, and I hope one day soon the Republican side, is beginning to look like America. And yet, in our state, we still have a legacy of the Confederacy that we need to deal with. And it, yeah. as I said, it was on display powerfully last year. But it's, you know, we see the statutes, we see the names of the streets. Um, 
how do you reconcile where we are, where we have been as a state and where we want to go? Yeah, the whole the statues and the street names is all delicate because you don't want to dishonor the history, right. but also recognize the history was about keeping human right. beings enslaved. And uh, so there, the people like, you know, the, the church that we've gone to for years, Christ Church, they had uh, Lee and, and uh, uh, George Washington were both both slave right. owners. Both were members of the vestry of the church. So they, they used to honor them in the church. Well, they decided they would move the honoring over to the library and out of the church itself. You know, finding reasonable compromises like that. But I do think that uh, as, a, as a commonwealth that becomes ever more diverse, um, that the tolerance is really, really important. You know, I, I, I represent the 8th District, Arlington, Alexandria, Falls Church. It's um, the second most educated congressional mm -hmm. district in the country, or the third wealthiest, and yet 37% of the homes speak a language other than English in the home. So it's still um, much more much more like a, like a Geneva or a New York or someplace like that. You know, I'm, I, I am obviously biased since I'm one of your constituents, but I will tell you, in, in our district, we have some of the best food, and it's the best <laughs> ethnic food. And this yeah. is the diversity that comes with where we live. And yeah. it's you see people of all, all races, nationalities, all backgrounds, and it's a welcoming environment. And, and the counties are growing, uh, are very prosperous oh, as in, well. incredible, and wonderful schools. I heard the other day, T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria yeah. has 91 different languages spoken in the school. It's amazing. This is, and what we also see around the world, those cities, those areas that are most diverse are the ones that have the greatest vibrancy, intellectual energy, economic growth. You know, give me a place that is all, you know, so uh, homogeneous, and that's a place that has no energy and no growth. Yeah. And yet I also see, and I think this is the challenge in, with all states right now, there are places that do remarkably well economically. Northern Virginia is a classic example. And then you have places in our state that don't do particularly well. And and that's not just a Virginia issue. It's an every state yeah, issue. Yeah. I mean, the jobs, um, the well-educated people are going to the areas, largely urban, suburban areas that are prosperous. And I don't know that we as a country have quite figured out what to do about those other regions. And so in some sense, I get the economic dissatisfaction that a lot of these Trump voters feel. Yeah, you know, there, there are some deep structural things there. I'm not as pessimistic as I was because I've seen a lot of rural Virginia. Um, these small towns have come back and done really well. You know, Bedford, Virginia, for yeah. example, Culpeper, Virginia, partly because people don't have to work in the city anymore. There's so much telework. As broadband, you know, the fiber gets right. every place, it becomes possible really to outsource. Um, but one of the structural differences is that America and Virginia have forever based um, local revenues on property taxes. Mm -hmm. So the ability to fund a school in Southwest Virginia where, where property values are very low, therefore property taxes are very right. low, becomes a lot harder. Northern Virginia where all these homes you know, are really expensive, yeah. they can do really good schools. So thinking, rethinking how we fund education could make a really big difference. All right, I, I'm gonna ask you a, a, an odd question as a member of Congress. Um, in a time of gridlock, um, has Washington made itself irrelevant? Are all the major policy changes happening at the state and local level or business? We're, we're not irrelevant, um, but sometimes we flirt with that. Right. Uh, yeah, I was in state government for yeah. eight, eight years, and I loved it because the state's the laboratory yeah, of democracy. Yeah, lots of stuff happens. Yeah, yeah. And You're a businessman. You know you know what it's like to create jobs. And I, I, I love being able to have a, a, a flush legislative agenda in Richmond and getting it all done in 60 days. Here, it might take 60 years sometimes. Um, but I do think 
there are a lot of people thinking hard about how to make Congress more effective. For example, I'm part of this little reformers caucus, right. Democrats and Republicans, yep. one-to-one. -one. And one of the things we're debating right now is can we write the rules for the next Congress in September and October before we know who's going to be in charge? Fascinating. Um, so that it was just little ideas like uh, every member of Congress could be guaranteed one vote on a bill per, per year in the huh. House. So if you're only going to get one, do you want to name a post office? Do you want to make a big messaging statement about climate change? Do you want to get something really done that will you know, move, move the country forward? Um, or, or we have a lot of things. Um, you know, Bob Goodlad, who's my friend and colleague, has bottled so much up in judiciary over the years. Uh, bills that have you know, majority Democrat and Republican co-sponsors on, you can't get out. So you change the rule and say if a, any given bill has a majority of both parties in a given committee, it at least gets a floor vote or a committee vote. Things that would break this gridlock right now. Right now, there's no so-called regular order. Nothing comes to the floor unless the speaker says it does. God, so one person out of 435 controls everything. And, and that and that infamous Hastard rule that it has to have the majority of the majority in order yeah. to get out is yeah. just that the fact that we are living by that is crazy. Yeah. And if it was just the Hastert rule, which they don't like calling it that well, of course. Well, no, <laughs> I, I can imagine why. Um, that would be okay, but instead, the way Ryan has interpreted it, it says the majority of, that they need a majority of the whole right. 218 out of their 240, which is really hard to get, especially with the Freedom Caucus. So they, if they could get 190 or really you know, 170 of theirs and then make it up with Democrats, you get a lot more done. Uh, Don, we've got about another minute left. Um, what's Is there a candidate you're excited about this fall that people aren't thinking about? Or is there a trend that you're thinking about that's of note, something that people should look over the next 80 or 90 days? Well, trend number one is the amazing number of great women running. Mm -hmm. Uh, trend number two is the, the number of military veterans running all as Democrats. There's something like a dozen uh, all around the country, which is, you know, because you typically have thought the last generation military are, are Republicans. And now, now we're, that's not what we're finding at all. And, uh, and I'm excited that, you know, that there's very little about Donald Trump that I want to say nice things about, that I'm happy about, except that he has led to an incredible resurgence of civic activity. Our Democratic committees have doubled. There are all <laughs> kinds of groups that are not Democrats, you know, the that have just fired up. And people are really wanting to make a difference in our democracy. And for that, I'm grateful. Well, that's fantastic. Well, we have been so honored to have Congressman Don Byers, our guest for the last half hour. Uh, please follow the congressman on uh, Twitter at Rep Don Byer. Uh, this has been Chris Liu. Uh, guest hosting for Bill Press uh, on a Friday. Um, I'm always very grateful I had this opportunity to do this. Uh, grateful to Ray Rogers, uh, our producer. Ray and I are both constituents of Don Beyer. Uh, we will not uh, bug him with our road or trash issues, uh, <laughs> but we're so grateful. So, this uh, is the Bill Press Show. <laughs>